This is episode 100. Uh, what did I say? 56. 56. 156. Instant, instant, instantly forgetting. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And uh, yeah, this is episode 156. And for this episode, we are looking at well, a rather weird lizard, to be honest. A purely parthenogenic lizard. All females. Yeah. Well, it'd be... I mean, it would have to be to be parthenogenic, right? Yeah. Yeah. They lay eggs which are clones of themselves. Yes. There are no males in the population. Yeah. And this is uh, the Colorado checkered whiptail, which is mm, found in yeah. Colorado in the United yes. States of America. Colorado, to me, is just South Park. That's Colorado, right? I have no idea. I think so, but maybe I'm wrong. But yeah, this lizard's weird. The Colorado checkered whiptail, Aspilaskelis neotessellatus. Like you say, it's all female. And also their range is like mostly just a, an army base. And <laughs> it gets yeah. stranger because they are parthenogenetic, parthenogenic as they call it in the title of this, which is like the syllable reduced version, which is easier to say. And it gets weirder because not only are they all female, but they are actually a species which resulted from the hybridization of two other species. So this is a species which was like... I'm sorry. ...created by accident by a random mating. So this species is Aspidoscalus neotessellata. Right. There's a checkered... There's a common checkered whiptail called Aspidoscalus tessellata, right? Tessellatus. Tessellata. Tessellatus. Is it Tessellatus? Are you sure? That, I mean, oh, I'm wow. looking at it in the oh, paper. Yeah, 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 Tessellatus. Right. So the Neo one is Tessellatus. That's probably something to do with the gender of it. I don't know. But that would be the opposite of it being all female. It would be Tessellata, right? Well, it's not to do with the... Yeah, the gender of the words is different than the gender of the species. Like, Well, that just makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In Latin, you have to be careful the way you put things. Like, there might be an A on the end if the word is a certain gender and not if there isn't, etc. Otherwise, et you get beaten but, up by Romans, right? Yes, yes, yeah. Julius will be absolutely livid. But going back to the weird origin of this species, so you've got this common checkered whiptail, which is a unisexual diploid species, and then you've got sorry, diploid. diploid, diploid meaning it's got two sets of chromosomes. Right. Yep. So you've got this one species which is unisexual, and then. It mated with a sexual species called the six-line race runner, which is another closely related species in this <laughs> genus, which is Aspidoscelis sexlineata. Right. And when these two reproduced, they had babies and the eggs hatched out and it was this new species, Neotessellatus, which um, is completely its own thing and reproduces parthenogenetically. And basically, after they combined the babies were delegated as a brand new species and they have been since i don't know how long ago a while <laughs> what why what it's it, so confusing you're, you're making it's it sound so like confusing. it's a one-off it's a one-off deal mate but surely ben, this is like a repeated hybridization of these two originating species i read it to be a one-off deal we have a like a lizard adam and a well no really a lizard eve or lots of lizard eaves, and from them, this collared, checkered whiptail exists. Yeah, so you had two species running around. One was already unisexual. One had two sexes. They had 
offspring together. So a yep. male from one mated with the unisexual female. Yep. Her resulting eggs created this brand new species. Right. Which doesn't mate with anything because it produces clones of itself. Right. And that species ended up living on this army base in Colorado and it got described as a species and now it's its own thing. And, and that's we're the species we're talking about. They entirely originate from a single brood. I don't know, but that's the impression I got. That's almost Which besides the point sense. because it already it's already nuts. It does make sense. It would make sense, absolutely, because of the parthenogenicness of it. Yeah. I'm amazed they still exist because I would have thought that they'd just be wildly susceptible to sort of issues from inbreeding depression or just because there's so little genetic variability well, in them, presumably. Yeah, no, that is a big problem for parthenogenic animals because they're all female there is no like sexual reproduction so there is right. no mixing of genes they yeah. are all clones of the original female in perpetuity and like the thing well, is the original females s because presumably yes. all of the oh there will have been a few yeah right because it's the entire brood's worth but still that's only one brood's worth that's a hell of a bottleneck and that's assuming all of them survived to reproduce what you tend to see with the parthenogenic animals that become sort of well known you know like there's that blind snake isn't there the brahmini blind snake and then you've got like morning geckos do the mm -hmm, same thing mm -hmm. and they are both exceptionally successful invasive species because you only need one and then they're right. there and they're gonna self 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 replicate. remake in yeah, yeah in perpetuity right so um I mean, obviously, that's not really the case so much with this Colorado checkered whiptail because they're just living in this one army base in Colorado. But but I would imagine, you know, it would only take one if you slung one out of a plane by accident. You know, there's plenty of planes around on this military base, as we'll discuss. <laughs> it, all it would yeah, take is for one to board a plane and you could have multiple introduction events all over the damn shop. So, but yeah, highly confusing start to the podcast about the Colorado checkered whiptail. I always find it confusing when you're talking about diploid haploid triploid so this one is a triploid it's got three sets of chromosomes but let's talk a little bit about the situation here i i have a that's that's all i've got to add to this diploid chat <laughs> it's highly confusing so yeah we're on an army base let's introduce the paper actually it's by Kepas, Semersheim, Hudson, Lemicky, French, and Aubrey, 2023, Behavior, Stress, and Metabolism of a Parthenogenic Lizard in Response to Flyover Noise, published in Frontiers in Amphibian and Reptile Science. And yeah, obviously the fact that this little lizard is only found on an army base, it obviously has a unique set of circumstances, and it's only a little lizard, and the name... You know, they've got like a sort of repeating pattern on the back, hence the sort of name Tessellatus. That means like a repeating pattern. And they're just a little generic sort of brown looking lizard, but with some sort of white patterns on the back, they're quite small. But when we talk about threats to reptiles, we usually talk about things like habitat loss, but there can be sort of more insidious threats, things which are a little bit harder to quantify. You know, it's if you cut down all of the habitat, it's obvious. Sublethal, yeah. Yeah, just grinding but, them yeah, so down. One of these sort of less obvious problems that reptiles can encounter is uh, noise and there is evidence that noise affects a lot of different creatures pretty much like all vertebrates they've tested don't like noise birds turtles you name it frogs myself the ben 
hates it. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like if you're constantly hearing loud noises, they're not nat- especially if they're like, you know, we're talking about man-made noises like road noise or plane noise in this case. Animals don't really understand what that is and it is quite startling. And in this particular case, it's plane noises and loud. Like yes. in terms of intensity, we're talking about noises that are considerably louder than what you would expect. Yeah. I mean, it's not like natural things can't make an exceptionally loud amount of noise. Put your face near a cicada and you're going to be having a bad time. But this is a rather killer combination of very loud, very different from natural noises, and uh, potentially quite unpredictable from the animal's point of view. Yes, and this is noise from jets. So we've got this kind of noise coming over the lizards. Terrifying. Terrifying. It's got pre-prepared jet noises, this guy. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so, well, when we were living in Wales, they uh, jet pilots do their first flight over the mountains in Wales. And really low, too. Really, really low. Stuff. Yeah. It is startling. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a human, so I can contextualise that sound. But for animals, they're not so lucky. And one of the examples they gave in this paper was eastern blue-tongued lizards. These individuals, when they hear loud noises, they freeze. So they get scared and they stay still. And that was Cryptos. because of... Um, yeah, Something scary happens. Of... Freeze. Make sure I'm not spotted and remain safe. Exactly. And that was because of mining machinery noise, which is obviously kind of broadly similar. But one of the other things that commonly happens when animals hear loud noises is that they release this stress hormone, cortisol, and that basically, or corticosterone is the hormone, and that basically just makes you feel stressed. It's getting an animal ready for something stressful. What it does is it kind of like diverts energy to the central nervous system. And yeah, these human-made noises are known to trigger an increase in these stress hormones in like pretty much all vertebrate animals they've tested. And in this particular case, we are on Fort Carson military installation near Colorado Springs. And yeah, there's basically F-16s. You've got Chinook helicopters, all your favorite death machines flying around. And um, the authors of this paper were thinking, well, this is a species, this very strange parthenogenic result of a hybrid that is only found pretty much on this base. So let's see how they actually respond to different noises. So they had, I think the army base was actually very sort of forthcoming they were like yeah sure we'll fly some planes over while you record the sounds like they really played <laughs> yes, ball there was, a, there, was, there was a bit in the method wasn't it about liaising with the uh, flight controller to time flights more appropriately um <laughs> yeah which, which is, is really nice. cool yeah, like, like really some cool. nice cooperation yeah exactly and um yeah, they, so they were just looking to see basically whether or not when these jets are flying over, do the lizards, first of all, behave differently during this period when they're flying over? And then also, can they measure any sort of uh, responses in terms of the animal's physiology? So they were looking at this stress hormone, which they call court. And they also were looking at ketones, which are this kind of, well, they're like a source of energy when glucose isn't available. It's like an emergency energy source that the liver produces. And it can be produced in like stressful situations. And yeah, they were just looking to see if these things were affected by 
the planes flying over. And what they found when they looked at the behavior of lizards when a plane flies over is that they generally were a little bit more stationary. So first of all, like the blue-tongued skinks, less time moving because obviously as far as the lizard's concerned, there's some kind of imminent loud threat. Better not to move too much when that's happening. But interestingly, they also spent more time eating when there was lots of flyovers going on. And um, for reasons we'll discuss, they basically think that's like a compensatory behavioral response because there was also an increase in the cortisol level, the stress hormone, and also in ketone bodies, which are this like emergency energy source for stressful situations. So you've got an increase in the stress hormone, you've got an increase in the energy produced for yeah dealing with stress and the authors think that the reason that they're eating more is to kind of compensate for these additional requirements right so you've got this sort of initial freeze behaviorally but sort of a suite of others this eating and stuff to compensate for something that is pure like fight or flight but in this case i mean a lizard's not going to fight a plane or something that's so loud that it's spooking it it's more it's it's ready for flight I suppose the way I'm sort of picturing this is lizard chilling, going about its its regular movements, freezes as noise comes over it, but also spending more time sort of eating to compensate for the increased production of these, what do you call them, compounds? No, um, what's the word? Hormones. Hormones, that's the ticket, hormones. Yeah, compensation, I suppose, is the way to think about it, but it's... It's something else to it. There's like a... I suppose it's it's like, how deliberate is it? Is it... <laughs> are the animals feeling the cost and compensating? Or is it just they can continue eating without moving that much and therefore they just continue doing that? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I like to think that they're probably like feeling a bit hungrier because of the additional stress. So it's like, I don't know, like... I think a lot of humans react to stress by eating, right? Right. So... Maybe it's the same sort of idea. It's like, oh, I'm a bit scared, but eating makes me feel good. So I'll just do that for a bit. <laughs> so a mitigative, a mitigative strategy. It could for be. Them. I don't yeah. think that's kind of like the depth which you can never really get to because you can't really ask the lizard how it's feeling. You can't get to intent. Yeah. 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 Like, are you eating more now because it's something you can do while you're standing still and you're scared? Or are you eating more now because you are scared and it makes you feel better? Right. Or are you eating more because you're hungrier as a result of feeling more scared? Right. Exactly. Those you can't quite tease apart, but there is this sort of, at least they've identified that there is something going on. They are reacting to it in some way and it has corresponding impacts internally to the lizard. Yeah. Yeah. And they say, you know, like, obviously it's a military base, so there's going to be military stuff going on. I mean, they could ask them really nicely and their military is probably going to say, now we're just going to keep flying our planes, I think. But they do suggest that maybe they could sort of fly a little bit higher over the areas where they (laughs) particularly are. Just fly a little bit higher. You fly a little bit slower. (laughs) Just to put that in context, so we're, we're talking about jet noise and stuff and like depending on how close you are to a jet is how intense the noise is, obviously. And if you're near a base obviously they're going to be flying pretty low because they're landing and taking off which is zero so instead of just taking it as like okay fly over not fly over they did investigate whether intensity of noise made a difference and i don't remember spotting anything that was super connected to intensity of noise but just to give you an idea of so non-flyover dates when it's just regular colorado wildlife noise next to an army base is 30 to 50 decibels 
which is sort of what you'd expect on a street, a regular sort of street background noise sort of stuff. Jets and stuff going over, jets, helicopters and things, their highest recording on a flyover day was 112 decibels, which is like heavy machinery stuff or car horns. Car horn? Car horn, yeah. That is loud. Exactly. Is it's, it's Well, it's it's 100,000 times louder than 50 decibels. Yeah, because it's decibels a are logarithmic. Weird logarithmic mess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not a mess, actually. They're very orderly, but it's very <laughs> Logarithms are hard in my brain. Yeah, they are hard. We're talking like fireworks, lawnmowers, power tools, Jesus. that sort of stuff. <laughs> like it's, it's a nightmare. Pretty serious noise disturbance. So it does make sense that there is some sort of impact on these lizards. And now it's been properly quantified, which is nice. Yeah. And so, you know, what they've evidenced here is that the man made noises in the form of military aircraft are significantly impacting the physiology of these little Colorado checkered whiptails. They're making this behavioral adjustment and feeding extra yep. to try and sort yep. of compensate. Yeah. And that appears to sort of limit the energy expenditure to some extent, sort of relating to the noise pollution. So they are kind of, they seem to have a way to kind of semi-deal with it. Yes. But they you still... Don't know the long-term impacts of it. Yeah. Because there is a point about like oxidative stress, which I think yes. we've brought up in previous episodes, where it's basically this idea that you're having all these hormones flowing around and producing them and using them and sort of the rapid transformation of like fats and lipids and that sort of stuff into energy that you can use in the moment to get away to whatever predator does have a negative impact on your well-being through this oxidative stress right that's the general idea yeah so there is a what was their point that there wasn't much evidence for that if i'm remembering correctly with yeah that was the thing they tested which they didn't really find much evidence of yeah which is probably a good sign right (laughs) That maybe yeah. their eating mitigativeness is succeeding, maybe? Yeah, I always sort of gloss over oxidative stress because I find it really confusing as a concept. I think it's because it is quite confusing as a concept, and I have a feeling it's one of those aspects that, depending on when it's happening, where it's happening, and the magnitude of it happening, can either be good or bad. Because it's yeah. either a useful, by- not a useful byproduct, but an insignificant byproduct of something that's helpful. Or if it gets too much, it's seriously bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it didn't seem to be yeah. an issue here, was I think what I was really getting at. Yeah. So, And like I said, you know, the authors at the end, they kind of finish with, please, pretty please, army people, can we kind of try and keep the noise less than 50 decibels? <laughs> Which, given that it's a logarithmic scale, seems entirely implausible, unfortunately. So, yeah. But, you know... It's 50 decibels at the ground they're asking for. Yes. So just fly further away from the lizards, please. Yes, if possible. Did you notice a weird potential mistake in this paper that threw me for a loop? No. Have a look at figure 3, 4 and 5. Looking at figure 3, 4 and 5? Give me your impressions of the... the Okay, so we're looking at figure three. It's the proportion of time spent moving versus not moving. Mm -hmm. Flyovers, no, yes. Yep. Uh, Which is showing basically that they tend to move less when there's there's flyovers. Yes. Yeah. We'll have a look at figure four. It's one to do with 
proportion of time. Oh, they've accidentally labelled it moving, not eating. Have they? Yeah. Is it just the labels? Oh wait, that no, are no, wrong? no. Because <laughs> I think every single figure is the same image. <laughs> yeah, it is. it is. It's not the because la- I thought it was the labels were wrong, and I was like, all right, that's fine, that's easy. I'll just read the caption and swap it out. And I was like, mm, this seems to be exactly the same pattern as moving, non-moving. <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> all three figures, I think, are the same dynamite plots. Oops, we've discovered an oopsie daisies. Yeah. It's a pretty minor oops daisy because they provide numbers, so it's it's fine. But I'm a very visual person when it comes to scientific papers. I go to figures almost immediately over other bits of results. That's amazing. Well spotted. We should probably send an email because I would imagine that that's probably a mistake by the... Typesetting. Editors, maybe? I would assume so because the figure captions are all correct. So I would have thought that the authors have submitted... I don't know. I don't know. Are the figure captions all correct or are they all the same? I think they're all the same as well. Moving versus other behaviours, moving versus They've just behaviors. repeated the same thing three times. It's just literally the same thing three times. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I didn't notice that, which goes to show how little attention I pay to figures in contrast to you. Well, the thing <laughs> is you didn't need to because you look at the first one and you already got all the information, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, well, I suppose we should probably send an email. So... Let's move on, shall we, to our Species of the Bi-Week. So we got a new species here, and this is a paper by Chan, Grisma, Santana, Pinto, Loke, Cunaboy, and that's it, 2023. Scratching the surface, a new species of bent-toed gecko from Timor-Leste of the Darmand Villi group. Marks the potential for future discoveries. Published in Zoo Keys. I know what you're thinking. Oh my God, another species of bent-toed gecko. Jesus. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Ten a penny round here. The thing is, there's lots of them. And they all have little bent toes and they're all adorable. And there will be more and there will be more. And just when yeah. you think it's over, there'll be another one. And then inevitably... Certitaculus will be split into multiple genera. I think we're up to about 65,000 species of Certitaculus gecko. Give or take 100,000, yes. Yeah, that's an exaggeration. I don't know how many there are, but there are a lot. And um, yeah, this is a new one. And the thing is, I think some of them are more widespread and they kind of inhabit forests and stuff. But this particular species, for now. But this particular species is like one of the cave-dwelling ones. So obviously, you know, there probably used to be I don't know, more suitable range elsewhere. And then that sort of now they're isolated to these caves for some reason. I'm not maybe. sure, but it seems to be that... Or maybe it's just microendonism and that cave's just a wonderful spot for them to live in and they've just become isolated. And that's... That seems more likely, actually. Yeah, that's that, not, right? Like, it's probably not a cave island situation. It's probably just that, yeah, some geckos found their way to this cave and then sort of began yeah. to change. Yeah. Could be, could be. But we're in Timor-Leste, or the Democratic Republic of Timor-Leste, which is a country which occupies the eastern half of the island of Timor. Timor is like right next door to Indonesia. Um, it's kind of like the one of the more eastern islands. It's to the right of Wallace's line. So, you know, you get all the Wallace-style species here. <laughs> The Wallace-style species, what does that mean? 
You know what it means, man. Don't be difficult. <laughs> In the style of Wallace. Yeah. Of course. You know, you've either got the Wallace side or the non-Wallace side, right? And these things come from the Wallace side. What about Lindecker line? Are these Lindecker style species? Lindecker's not as big of a line. No? People aren't as interested in that one, are oh, they? Oh, why not? I don't know, but it is also another biogeographic barrier, which is like just further to the east that separates like <laughs> Timor and Sulawesi from so, Papua and Australia. I recently had a good chat with my partner about the point of these lines and whether they're in fact useful <laughs> in any meaningful way. <laughs> what does Aubrey think about it? Aubrey, Aubrey thinks they're kind of useless because, well, the fact that there isn't really a line is part of the problem because there isn't a definitive bit that separates these things. Basically, all we're getting at is there's a gradient, isn't there? Yeah. And the line doesn't apply to all these different species. It only applies to certain groups and certain other groups have different groupings and different lines. And so the idea of this sort of universal delineation between one side or the other sort of gets pretty weak the more you sort of look at it. And then yeah, it's sort of I, like, eh, maybe you should just treat it all like what it really is. And that's a gradient that's like anywhere else. It's an interesting gradient, definitely. But using the term and a, and, and a line specifically gives it a unneeded level of uh, an overly exaggerated sense of definitiveness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it's probably just a vestige of a, a simpler time when you needed lines to describe things, you know, like. You're trying to make sense of all these tiny islands back in the day. It's like, oh, yeah, well, the ones that right, it's the a, animals here. It's a step in the process, animals. but <clears throat> yeah. we're probably a bit beyond it at this point. All right. Well, let's leave the Wallace line behind. I'm, I'm sorry I mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the authors of this paper, they're exploring this cave in Timor Leste, and they saw a little gecko dashing across the limestone. They couldn't catch it because geckos are fast and they're really well adapted for the Especially rocks. Especially on their bent toes. Lots of grip. Yeah. Lots of grip. And so they thought, right, we'll come back at night. Hopefully we'll find some. And they ended up finding a bunch. And yeah, they described it as this new species. Um, it's sort of a nice looking slender little gecko. It looks like it lives on rock walls because it's quite skinny with its long, long, long toes. Nice long tail. Seven Yellow head. How, how big? Seven centimetres. That's small, isn't it? Is that is that's that excluding? SPL? That's excluding tail. Tail's probably about another seven or eight. But I think what's cool about this species is they've got this kind of yellow head, but they also have a really beautiful, like, ring around the eye, which is bright yellow, mm. which I like. Some sort of white bands across the back. And they've called it Certodactylus santana. And it's named after Nino Conis Santana National Park, which is where they found the gecko. But that park is in turn named after Nino Conus Santana, who was a military person who apparently fought against the Indonesian occupation of Timor-Leste in the 90s. So yeah, it's named after the place, which we like, but then the place is named after a guy, which we don't like, and the guy's a military person, which we kind of double don't like. So yeah, not really sure about the name, but it is what it is. It's a weird one. It's a weird yeah. one. I'm not after national. Mm, yeah, it's almost got it's almost got too many levels of uh, history on it, doesn't it? And it is a very human. I think the issue that we probably have with it more than anything is a very human centric name, which we're not fans of. 
we like our descriptors. That's what we prefer. Yeah. As I put words in your mouth, but I know it to be true. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. You keep your damn words out of my mouth, son. But no, it's fine. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. So, yeah, it's a big national park. So, yeah, it is where they're from. So if you know the name of the national park, you will know which Gekki you're talking about. And, you know, it's getting to the point now where they're probably running out of ideas for Certidactylus names. So <laughs> got to call it something at the end of the day, haven't you? But, yeah, this is like a big, big hotspot for biodiversity. There's loads of birds there. Beautiful diving. There's a picture in there's a Monga Bay article about about this paper coming out and uh, the coral reef looks absolutely sublime. Yeah, yeah wasn't the author suggesting that there's just it's going to be an absolute wave of species descriptions out of this area of, of Timor-Leste over the coming years because it just seems like there is so much that has not been described and part, partly because there's been you know, political upheaval in that part of the island so Scientific research and stuff has obviously taken a backseat and not been very easily done. So there's a lot to do, and therefore a lot of species in an area which is already... I mean, it's Indonesia, right? Yeah. Ultra biodiverse Pretty much. sort of location. Yeah, it's not co- it, isn't, it technically isn't Indonesia. No, it isn't but Indonesia. Like, but It's like, connected uh, up, yeah. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> What's the term for the whole set of islands from like Papua New Guinea up to... Malaysia and Philippines. Is it Micronesia? Is it Mike? Mm. Nah, that feels a bit. No, that's it's. No, that's not. Oh, is it? Sah- the Sahal. Micronesia is like a bit further north. Oh, it's submerged it... bit. Because like Australasia is too Melanesia. big. Melanesia. Melanesia. So you've got Australasia, which is like Australia and New Zealand, right? And then you've got. Melanesia, which is like New Guinea, the Bismarck Islands, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Fiji, Caledonia. And then you've got a bit further north, Micronesia, which right. very small islands we seldom talk about. And then if you go further east, you've got Polynesia, which is like Easter Island. Oh, actually, New Zealand's in, in Polynesia, not Australasia. Anyway, yeah. This whole archipelago was my point, not Indonesia specifically. The whole region is beautifully biodiverse. And therefore, it's to be expected that Timor-Leste has an outrageous number of species ready and waiting to be described. Yes, there will be many, many more in many, many cave systems. And yeah, that's it. Have you got any other business, Ben? No, nothing from me. That's me. I'm good. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I haven't got anything either. So yeah, I think if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're on social media. If you want to email us with any questions, any comments, any corrections, if we've butchered something, herphighlights at gmail.com. Thanks as always to the Patreons, uh, patreon.com slash herphighlights if you want to contribute. And yeah, we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>